I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and this is Sports Psychology Today, produced in partnership with The Washington Times. For more episodes of our show, go to WashingtonTimes.com, and for more information on the podcast or to interview with us, go to WinnersUnlimited.com or email me at drj at WinnersUnlimited.com. Now, each week on our podcast, we try to bring up a topic that's relevant to what's going on in the world of sports. As a sports psychologist being in practice for 37 years, I've had the privilege to work with athletes at all levels of competition, from the professional Olympic level all the way down to youth sports. I've worked with some tremendous people throughout my career, Olympic gold medalists, professional champions, collegiate champions, high school champions, and all kinds of wonderful people who coach. And one of the things that I've encountered throughout the years in my career are a number of tremendous people who want to help people out. But along the way, I've also encountered some people who have not felt that way. I've dealt with some people throughout my career who had ulterior motives. This past week in the world of sports, Dr. Larry Nasser, who worked with USA Gymnastics for years, was convicted of several counts of sexual misconduct with USA Gymnasts. He'd been the team doctor for the United States Gymnastics team for a long time, for United States Gymnastics, USA Gymnastics, and had been working with these young ladies a number of Olympic gold medalists, Olympic competitors, national champions, and has been sexually abusing them for years. Obviously in our country today, women's rights are becoming much more pronounced, much more discussed, and the issue of sexual misconduct has come out all over the place, at the Hollywood level, at the professional level, and in sports. There's no place in the world of youth sports for people who sexually abused kids. Personally, I've had to deal with this myself. My youngest son who swam for years had a coach who ended up going to jail for sexual misconduct with his swim team. I've seen it firsthand. An individual who was beloved by the team but behind the scenes was doing things people didn't know about until it was discovered. This happens all over the place and it happens quite frequently. It's important for sports organizations to do background checks on coaches. It's important for sports organizations to check out the people who work with young kids. And not just the coaches, but the other personnel as well. Chiropractors, psychologists, massage therapists, whoever it might be. Whoever's working with the team, there should be a background check done on these people to allow them to freely do their work without fear. Parents turn their kids over to sports organizations, sports teams, trusting the organization is gonna do the right thing to help their kids out. Today I'm going to be very privileged to be talking with Dr. Daniel Ryan. He's a lecturer in youth sports in England. He works at Brene University in London. And he'll be talking with us today about this whole issue, about abuse of athletes in youth sports, why it happens, and what we can do to prevent it. You know, there are a number of sports organizations, national sports organizations, that list banned coaches. I know USA Swimming is one of them. USA Gymnastics now has a lot of work ahead of them because of the damage that's been done by this doctor. All the Olympians who've come out, the national team members who've come out and talked about the abuse he's done on them for years. Why wasn't anything said? The same reason in Hollywood people didn't come out and say things. Because of fear. Fear of repercussions, fear that they're not going to be believed, fear they're going to be made fun of. It's important to speak up. As a psychologist, my job working with teams is to get people to talk about issues, talk about problems, and talk about how they can get better and have the freedom to express themselves. Today, I'm privileged to be talking with Dr. Daniel Rind. And now, 
I'm privileged to have with me Dr. Daniel Ryan from Bunnell University in London. He's a psychologist and senior lecturer in social psychology, and he has done a lot of research focusing on understanding the development and maintenance of healthy and unhealthy, ineffective and effective relationships in sport. And his research has been fundamental in the development of safeguards for children in sport, which is now endorsed in over 40 organizations around the world. Dr. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about your research and how you got into this. Sure. We've been studying this topic for uh, around 10 years now, and we started to realize that uh, abuse was something that happened in sport and that sport was not something that's magic and only has positive outcomes for, for children, but actually it's, it's, it's similar to any other organization uh, where they're actually children can be vulnerable to uh, different types of abuse. So we were wanted to really understand how it happens and how we can prevent it happening. You know, it's interesting because uh, I have two sons. My youngest son swam on a swim team all the way until his senior year in college. And when he was a sophomore in high school, the coach that he'd been working with for two years was discovered, had been abusing one of the girls on the team and ended up getting caught and going to jail for that. And it was a coach everybody knew. I knew him, seemed like a great guy, but behind the scenes he had some hidden things going on that he hid from everybody until it was discovered. And so I personally have had to deal with this myself, be it that it was with my son's coach. How do, how do people end up getting into, into the sports world and coaching kids with these problems, and why aren't these checked out firmly enough to prevent these guys from getting involved? Yeah, and I think that's unfortunately a familiar story that where often these perpetrators are very skilled at not only grooming the, the child, but also the whole situation to get into a position of, of power. And so sport traditionally has been a context within which people can access that with little barriers um, because often it's been informal and not, not really things that could actually stop people from getting into that position. And so more recently we start to see safeguards put in place. But um, I think sports, like any other organization where there's power and then vulnerability, so that's where we see abuse in the church or in, in care homes or more recently allegations in Hollywood. I think sport has those same characteristics where somebody can be in a real position of power and then they've got the children who have invested a lot um, and the coach is almost the, the gatekeeper to the dreams of the child who wants to make it. And if that coach is, it has the key to enable them to get there. So they're put in such a position of power that some inevitably, um, if they want to, will, will unfortunately abuse that power. You know, as I've listened to interviews with a number of the gymnasts who were abused by Dr. Nasser, one of the things that keeps coming up, and it's the same thing I've heard with all these women in Hollywood related to Harvey Weinstein, it's the word fear. Fear of getting caught, yeah. fear of being exposed, fear of having to talk about what happened to him. People are scared. People are scared to talk about these things. These perpetrators have tremendous power. And when you're a 13-year-old girl who's a gymnast and it's the team doctor examining you, you may not know any better. But then you start to find out, and then I've read a number of these Olympic gymnasts, uh, very prominent ones as well, talked about being scared to say something. How do we get these young people to become less afraid to speak up. Absolutely, but it begins with that idea of, of uh, firstly, education and understanding what's appropriate, what is not appropriate, what is the norm and what, what is uh, actually something that's, that's abnormal. And then it's giving them that voice so that often the children do expose or, or disclose to people, but then that, that first person they speak to doesn't believe them or rather not, would not believe them and think, oh, no, it's somebody, it would, the doctor would never do that. They're in a real position of trust and maybe you misinterpreted it or um, it's something that's not actually what really what you're saying has happened. So it's, it's not only the, the children um, having the confidence, but it's having the adults around them to understand 
how they should act in that, that information and then who, say, who they should report it to and being confident in those procedures. Because I think if you're a young athlete and it's building up to the Olympics or a, a big squad decision, you think, well, it's, if I tell anybody at this stage, I'm going to lose my place on the team. No one's going to believe me. So I think it's trying to have stories that counterbalance that to say that actually when people do come forward, um, that they are supported and are trusted. And we've seen that in one of the recent cases, such as in, in Hollywood, where one person comes forward, suddenly everybody else has the confidence and they believe they're going to be trusted. So the same thing has happened actually in England um, in uh, elite youth football, where we've had a lot of cases come forward. Once one player came forward, lots of people did. So I think it's building on that to, to give people the voice and the confidence that actually um, they will be believed. But on the other side, it's making sure that we design organisations so that coaches or doctors aren't in that position of power. So we've designed those relationships out of it so that actually the decisions on selection are made by groups of coaches, not just one person. Or there's procedures when you are with a doctor, actually there's other adults around and things like that so that we actually make it very difficult, almost impossible for people to to get in those positions in the first place. Well, you know, there's always going to be someone who's going to get involved in these professions with ulterior motives. And I think doing background checks is important, but that's not always going to make sure, you know, there aren't going to be some people getting involved in this who do have ulterior motives. I think obviously if a, if a team physician is examining a young girl or young boy on a team, there should be somebody else in the room with them. It shouldn't just be alone. That, that would eliminate a lot of these things. But I think the importance of speaking up and educating people on the importance of talking up and, and being able to express themselves is important. Now, if you're a 12 or 13-year-old girl or boy, you may not know any better. So how do we get them to understand that situation and be able to develop that situation better for them? Yeah, I think it's uh, with these, it being in such a pipe of evidence in the media now is now is the opportunity for organisations and, and parents and coaches to begin these conversations. That, so that when anybody joins a new club or a new team, it should be one of the things that's part of the induction to say, here's our code of conduct, here's our policy, this is things that are appropriate, these aren't appropriate, here's who you can speak to, um, and there's a number of channels that you can speak to um, that if you should you feel uncomfortable in any way. So you do it right at the very first step to show that organisations feel this is a a priority and that they are those clear channels of, of reporting um, and it's something that we've seen is that often in sport people think the goal is to have zero cases and then that often leads to secrecy and cover-up and, and people not wanting to, to disclose and what we argue is that actually you want cases you want people to report and, and sports with more cases that's a good sign not necessarily a bad sign we, we just want people to come forward much earlier in the process not as we see more recently long time after they retired we want them to come forward the very first time something inappropriate happens so that we can put something in place. I know, actually, more cases is a good thing, not a bad thing, and that's sometimes hard for people to understand. I know the whole issue of fear is a big, big problem with a lot of people, and, and, and we're seeing it, like we said, not just in new sports but in Hollywood everywhere. I, I personally had to deal with a psychiatrist years ago who abused, sexually abused clients and patients, and... They were afraid once he got exposed, all kinds of people came out of the woodwork who said he'd been doing this to them. And all these people shared with me they were scared to say something because of fear of the power he had of them. So I think this power that these people have, especially coaches or doctors or people in sport, they have a tremendous amount of power over that young person in terms of their ability to perform or play or compete. And so there's a lot of fear, I think, that athletes have to say anything or do anything because hey, I want to play and I better do what the coach says or the doctor says or I may not get my chance. Absolutely. And it comes down in their mind, a decision between carry on playing or, or tell somebody they think it's either one or the other. So the relationship of abuse can carry on because they feel like once they tell somebody, 
then their career is over. And these children often have invested a great deal. Their parents might have invested a great deal of money into it. So they feel trapped. And that's the key is that the fear is used as a way of um, trapping that individual just so all they can see is no other option. So they might make threats around, if you tell anybody, I'll do this to your family members or your career will be over. And so often it's not founded on anything. They haven't really got the power to, to do anything about that. But the, obviously the child, if you're 12, 13, 14, we're always told in society, you, you trust a doctor automatically. There's an implicit feeling that this person is there to do me good. Or a coach, you know, people who use sport, coaches are seen as something, often they're volunteers, they're doing a good thing. Um, and so you can't ever think they'll be there to do something bad. So that fear is absolutely right. So it's trying to give them confidence um, and making them understand that actually that person hasn't got as much power. So as I mentioned before, it's trying to make sure that actually when it comes down to making decisions on funding or, or places on the Olympic teams, actually is spread across a number of people so committees make the decisions not just one person so that they don't get that position of power where they can create this fear and threaten people and so on so it's diffusing that power by spreading it across more people well it's interesting because i've read there are a number of uh, olympic sports organizations in the united states that will publish lists of coaches who've been banned yet there are also some sports organizations that will not do that they will not publish the lists of coaches yeah. who've been banned and I, I don't understand the re- rationale behind that. But they keep the list confidential. And, for example, USA Volleyball and USA Wrestling, the Olympic national governing bodies for those sports, who oversee networks of coaches and clubs that work with hundreds of thousands of kids, maintain lists of adults banned from their organizations for activities including sexual misconduct, but they keep those lists confidential and won't publish them. Why not? Yeah, it's very surprising to me, and I can only assume it's it's a concern around their reputation as a sport if these lists come out, and it's also concern about uh, being sued, I imagine, by those people on those lists. But I think that that approach is completely uh, inappropriate because ultimately you're protecting the wrong person. You're, you should be protecting children either within that sport or other sports. We're not interested necessarily in just protecting the organisation or protecting the identity of the people on the banned list because what we've seen um, through research is actually... People can put on a banned list. They can then move to another sport or another club or even another country and carry on that abuse. So that just because that sport has stopped them, they're not solving the problem. They're rather pushing it on to someone else to deal with. And so children ultimately end up still being abused um, because they're not making it transparent. So I think the sports that have taken the lead, like USA Swimming and Gymnastics, have published those banned lists. I think that's that's an appropriate move. That everybody should be able to to check out the coaches. Um, it may be something that should be done on a more uh, national level. I know that they have the new National Centre for Safe Sport over there, so maybe something that they can look into so that they can try and encourage all sports to create a centralised list so that all people on any band list on any sport should appear on one simple database that any parents or people could check. So I think, yeah, protecting the organisation, protecting the people that allegations are made against is the wrong approach. It should be about protecting the child. Let me ask this question. You speak quite frequently on this topic. What are some of the common questions you're asked when you give talks about this? I think often people are in complete denial. They think, how on earth can this happen in sport is the first question people ask. Because they think sport is something, is, is we're always talking about sport can solve a lot of problems. It develops physical skills, social skills, psychological skills. And these sport can be good, but it's not inherently magic in itself. So I think there's that initial denial that somehow sport is different to any other social setting, when in fact, actually abuse in any organization can happen. It's, it's almost um, inevitable with some of the sizes of the organization you mentioned with hundreds of thousands of people, it's unrealistic to think that you can pre- prevent any abuse happening. So that's the first question, is that you know, does this really happen in sport? 
Um, and I think the second question is, okay, if it does happen, how do we actually address it? And I think the, the approach we've argued is that traditionally people really focus on the perpetrators. So they try and do background checks and things like that. And, and often that, that works for a very small number of people because um, it only works if they have got a criminal record, which, which is not all cases would have. They might have allegations or um, inappropriate behaviour, but it wouldn't necessarily show up on a, on a background check. And so what we try and shift the focus onto the organisation and the culture they have in that organisation. So how can we have policies and procedures and education in place so that actually, rather than completely focus on the perpetrator, if we get the organisation right and the procedures right, it doesn't matter if they try and access our organisation. There's enough barriers in the place that it won't happen. So, so that's the second question is about how we do it. And that's what I think we need. It's all about that organisational culture to make sure that children are listened to and believed um, and supported. So a big proponent of this, a big part of this, is the ability to communicate to be honest and be straightforward and to not be scared. So that topic, that the word fear, as I mentioned earlier, which has been uh, one of the words you've heard with every one of these Hollywood actresses who've talked about Harvey Weinstein. They were all scared to say something. They're all afraid. Yeah, yeah. I think kids inevitably obviously want to make their parents happy or their friends happy or the coaches happy. And so if they say, how was sport today? That they want, they, they want, they, they're scared to say actually the coach was doing something inappropriate. That it's, they it's feel easier for them to just lie and say it was a great experience. So that, that fear, and it's, it's, it's kind of get that communication with the parents, whether it is just that 10 minute car journey home from the training, but can you use that time to really ask them about genuinely how it was, uh, or even observe the training and try to turn up unexpectedly and just to see how people are interacting so that actually the fear should be on the perpetrator's side, not on. Um, the child side at the moment is on that child side because they're they're scared of the consequences. They think that actually they won't be believed or nothing will be done about it. When actually it should be the other way around. It should be that the people should be scared to uh, develop those relationships in the first place. So I think that's a trend we've seen across Hollywood, across allegations in the church, across sports. Um, it's that fear that's used then to to trap the person into maintaining that inappropriate relationship. So it's using the time now. It's really in the media to address that and think actually this is wrong. And now's the time to kind of put a full stop to it uh, and encourage children to talk about these issues. So tell me a little bit about the personality characteristics of these people who do this. Because in your research, I'm sure you've evaluated some of these people. There's, there's a common denominator I have found um, with that. But I want to find out what you say first. Yeah, I think it's um, people that like that sense of, sort of power over people that are vulnerable. So they want to get into that position where they can... Uh, have that domination over other people and that sense of, uh, of control that goes along with that. They have people they can um, manipulate and do what they want to, um, to do. And so, um, but often it's people that it happens across all sorts of personalities. So you can say there's certain types, but actually um, people assume it's somebody that's often single and um, not many friends and so on. But actually it happens across all types. So you find perpetrators that are married with their own children and all society would say they're a really nice person everybody likes them and so that we found those types can be perpetrators as well so it's quite difficult to say this certain type of person because actually any type of person can be a perpetrator given the right context and so, that and that's um, interesting that you say that yeah. yeah that's interesting that you say that because the uh, coach of my son's swim team who was uh, caught sexually abusing a, a swimmer everybody loved him too i i loved him thought he was a great guy you know he hid it from everybody nobody yeah. knew he had had the ability to persuade people to think he was a great guy but behind the scenes there was this other part of him that was obviously very disturbed and he hid it from everybody except yeah. for the, the the two girls he he attempted to uh harm 
So I think the yeah. important thing we're picking up here is is number one, doing the research on people who are within an organization, checking out their backgrounds as best you can. Of course, you, you know, there are always going to be people who fall through the cracks. But second, then after that, it's about the importance of communication, not being afraid to speak up, not being afraid to talk about things and constantly bringing up this topic. I know a lot of people don't want to bring it up. I don't want I've, I've heard people say, Doc, I don't want to bring that up. I don't want to talk. That's negative. I want to talk about positive things. And I'm like, hey, you need to make sure people are aware that if this stuff's going on, they talk about it. A lot of people are afraid, Dr. Ryan, don't you believe that, that they're afraid to say something because they don't want to bring up something negative? Absolutely, because often um, when it's in the media, either individual level, it seems like a, you know, it's a very awkward topic is that people inherently it's a horrible topic of thought to think about children being abused. So therefore, that's the first barrier you don't want to talk about it. And then more broadly, you think, well, if there is a case, I might be wrong. That's another thing where people think oh, there might be something going on. But if I make a false allegation, then, then that's going to make me look bad. Um, and other people think it's very bureaucratic. I don't want to make an allegation in case I'm wrong and have to have lots of interviews with the police or paperwork. And so people find ways of, of justifying to themselves, actually, I'm not going to say, say anything because that's easier than all these different potential barriers or negative consequences that, that come out. And what's interesting is looking at the organisational level is that people are really worried about their reputation, thinking if we have one case that comes out in the media, all the parents are going to take their children out of our club and then our income's going to go down and sponsorship and so on. But what we find, actually, is that the, the, the clubs that the sports to get this right... It's a real opportunity to, to do a good thing. So if you really can safeguard children and find cases and publicize that and demonstrate that actually you are making great strides to put things in place, that's a good news story. I, I think, think organization automatically think child abuse is a bad news story. I think that's a great point, and I think if we can get more people to understand the rationale behind that, to not be scared to speak up, not be scared to voice their concerns, that's going to help educate people and hopefully prevent more people from getting involved in these things. Yeah, and I, I, what's also interesting is that sometimes people think that safeguarding or child protection is against their goals. We think whatever your goal is in sport, if you want to get an Olympic medal, that's, we think that's more likely to happen if someone feels safe and their well-being is looked after. If you want children to participate more for fun, that's going to happen more if they feel safe and their well-being is looked after. So safeguarding will help you achieve whatever your goal is in sport. People often think it's safeguarding or something else, when actually they're, they're the same thing. If you get it right then America will get more medals and more happy children playing sports. So it's fundamental to every other goal you're trying to achieve. Yeah, the words that are popping into my mind as we're wrapping up our talk here are trust, fear, power, and communication. All those, those four words all play a role here. You need, to, you need to trust the people you're working with. The people who are, who are in control have power. You've got to be able to not be afraid to speak up, and you've got to be able to communicate. And I think if you can do that, that will hopefully prevent as much of this as happening as you can in the future. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself. That's exactly right. So hopefully people listening can, can take those messages forward and whatever their role is in sport can help to safeguard children because everybody has a role in sport. It's not just one safeguarding officer or child protection officer. Actually, everybody has a role to play in looking out for each other and talking to children and then raising concerns um, if you do have any. Well, Dr. Ryan, I want to thank you for joining us all the way from London, England this morning. If people would like to get a hold of you, how can they reach you? How can they find out about your research? Sure. Um, if they could just Google my name, so uh, Daniel Rind, that's R-H-I-N-D. You see I have a whole website at the university with my, my email address. If you want to email me, then that's absolutely fine. Happy to help in any way I can with research or just guidance or, or in any way. So, um, yeah, email is probably the best way. And your email address? It's uh, daniel.rind, which is R-H-I-N-D, at Brunel, which is B-R-U-N-E-L, dot A-C dot U-K. 
I want to thank you, sir, for taking the time to join us this morning. Great interview, great points, great comments, and continue your work because you're, you're doing something that's very important, helping to educate people about this topic and hopefully prevent this from happening in the future. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I want to thank Dr. Dan and Ryan for joining us today. Great topic and an important one that I think everyone who's got a child in youth sports should hear and think about. It's important to understand who the people are who are coaching your kids, who are working with your kids. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and you've been listening to Sports Psychology Today, produced in partnership with The Washington Times. For more episodes of our show, go to thewashingtontimes.com, and for more information on the podcast or to advertise with us, go to winnersunlimited.com or email me at drj at winnersunlimited.com. Whoever you're listening, please check in again for our latest podcast. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.